we doing this morning? Good? Eh? Meh? Kind of? Sort of? It's an awful nice day outside to be in. We're going to be in the book of Job this morning. Uh, eventually, it's going to take a minute, but we're going to be in the book of Job. I know you guys are like, oh great, more doom and gloom. That's fantastic. That's just exactly what we need to hear right now is more sad things. No, that's, uh, it's not going to be the focus of the morning. Um... I'm not going to lie, the last couple of weeks have been kind of confusing for me uh, personally and uh, trying to figure out kind of what things are going to look like here and what we're going to be doing here as we open things back up, trying to figure out are we still on quarantine or are we not? I guess it just kind of depends on your purpose for being out, whether or not you're supposed to be in a group or it's not okay to be in a group. I don't, I don't really understand what, what's okay and what's not, but I'm wondering... Uh, even as we kind of uh, transition to this next stage of things about uh, whether you feel comfortable going out or not, I'm wondering what it is that you've missed the most during this season where things have been shut down. Uh, maybe what, what you, you missed a, a couple of months ago, and maybe it's open now, and, and now that it's open and you've gone back and you've done it, you, you realize like, oh man, I didn't realize how much I was going to miss this. I wonder what it might have been for you guys. Uh, maybe it's that perfectly cooked steak that, that comes from your favorite restaurant that you've not been able to get in a few months and you've, you've missed that. Maybe it's the, the feeling of satisfaction uh, after a, a workout that, that, that pushes you just hard enough to where you think you're going to die, but then you don't actually. Like Maybe you miss being in a gym where you get to that place um, maybe it's, uh, you, you're like me and it's just sports in general, the ability just to turn on TV or to go to a, a, a sporting venue, a stadium and, and, and get to see, uh, the team that you want to cheer for, get to see that walk off home run and, uh, listen to the crowd kind of lose its mind when your team wins and be able to, to celebrate and high five one another. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's uh, like live entertainment. Maybe you guys are concert people and you've not been able to go to a concert now for several months and you've not been able to watch these live performances that you're used to just to kind of be captured not just by the, uh, the group that's there with you or not just by the, the artist but also with the group that's there with you singing along for these uh, songs just to be able to, to gather together. Or maybe it's this. The ability to gather together with God's people on Sunday morning and be able to uh, sing songs and, and pray together and be together. I, I don't know what it is that, that has, has happened over the course of the last couple months, but I'm not going to lie. Some things have kind of, I, I wouldn't say caught me by surprise, but the way that I have missed things has been a little bit uh, different for me than I had anticipated. I've tried to be pretty introspective over the last couple of uh, months and think through uh, my heart, think through why I've responded in certain ways to certain things. I think that's one of the best ways to figure out where your heart is, where your loyalties are, where your idols are, is to figure out how your heart responds to certain things. And so I've tried my best to, to sort through those things and think through those different things. And um, to be honest with you, our family, due to Emily's health issues, have been on some version of quarantine for almost a year, since last uh, July. So we've really had to kind of sit in this for a while. Now, at least last year, I could watch sports on TV and I could escape a little bit that way. Uh, but I mean, for the most part, we've been in this for a while and we've really had to, to sort through this. We've, we've not been able to go out in large groups. We've not been able to eat at a restaurant in a long time. And um, 
after a while, I, I start to realize things that I miss maybe more than I thought that I would. And you know what I've been doing for the last four or five weeks? I don't even know how this happened. I don't know why it happened. It just, it's one of those like YouTube rabbit holes that you get on. I know nobody else does that, but I, I do that. Um, and I just start kind of watching some stuff. And what I've, what I've found over the last four or five weeks is that I am drawn to basically one of three things. I either watch old UT football games. I watch, because uh, you don't want to watch recent UT football games. You watch old UT football games. Uh, I watch old Braves games, uh, or I watch live concerts that have been recorded, well recorded, uh, and put on YouTube to watch. Now, it, it's odd for me, especially the concert thing is odd, because uh, most of these are, are my favorite bands, and I know most of the songs, and I have the regular recordings at, at, at my disposal to be able to listen to. There's no need for me to go listen to a live recording. I wasn't there for those recordings. But that's what I find myself drawn to, is these, these recordings of live events in front of large crowds. And I can't seem to get enough of clips like that. I find myself at night as the kids get uh, tucked in and put in bed, I'll, I'll, just, I'll, I'll turn it on to, to YouTube and just listen to these concerts. Instead of the albums, I'll listen to the live concerts. And I've been wondering why I've been doing this. Why do I find myself drawn to this? Maybe you are in a similar situation. Maybe not. I don't know. But uh, for me, I've been trying to figure out why is this, why is this kind of just instinctually happening uh, for me? And there's a lot I could draw from this. I could talk about uh, our need as humans to be in community and to be around others. We could talk about uh, a lot of other things. But uh, this morning, I want to draw kind of one aspect of what it is that makes us crave some of these things. Going out to restaurants to eat when you have food at home. Uh, being able to watch videos and, and go to live performances instead of watching videos. To be able to go to live performances, to be able to go to a sporting event and go to a sporting venue and watch people do these things. I mean, I can cook a steak at home, and if I want to take my time, I can cook one pretty well. So why do I feel like I need to go to a restaurant to eat a steak? I can play baseball in my backyard. Um, I can even sing at home. You don't want to hear it, but I can sing at home. I can do all these things by myself if I want to. I can, baseball's hard to do by yourself, but you can figure it out. Uh, you, can do, you can do parts of that by yourself. I can play with my kids in, in the backyard. Um, but what is it that draws us to this bigger thing? What is it that draws me to watch these videos and to look at this? And even these protests that we've been seeing, obviously at, at its heart, it, it's kind of bound up in, in racial tensions and, and sin that's festered through centuries. And we talked a lot about that last week. And um, I'm, I'm not going down that, that, that trail again, but on a larger scale, if you kind of step back a little bit from the issues at hand, these protests in part draw so many people um, they, they draw so many people that, because whether you agree with their cause or, or not, people long to be a part of something bigger than themselves. They long to be a part of something that is more than, than what they are, that even the sum of its parts, so, uh, you know, if, 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 if there's 10 people gathered in a room, the sum of its parts is more than what each one of those people could bring individually, but being together, it somehow becomes more. 
whether it's the big touchdown, the game-winning home run, the stadium concert where everyone is singing the same song, we all long to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. And not only that, we long to see something done better than we could do it. We want to appreciate greatness on some level. I don't know, how many of you, anybody in here go to the Garth concert back in November? All right, so one, just one? I know there's more than that. They're just not here today. So I know several people went to the the Garth concert, but why would you go? I mean, you can open up Amazon and listen to everything that Garth has made. Uh, you You can listen to all that music. You can sing it in your kitchen. You can sing it in your truck. Why go pay money in the cold to listen to Garth sing these songs? Well, it's one of two reasons, either because the, poor, the, the performer is so outstanding that you leave in awe of their ability, ability and talent, uh, which may have been true of Garth at one point, but at this point, Garth concerts are like just giant sing-alongs. I don't even think he sings but like half of a verse, and then he just lets the rest of the crowd go and sing it together. And people will pay all kinds of money to do that. And Why? Because they love to be able to sing the same song with 75,000 other people. Because there's something about being part of something bigger than yourself that changes the dynamic of what is happening there. We are hardwired to pursue, even at great cost to ourselves, something bigger or better than ourselves. All of us. We are all wired for that. For some, that's why they go and they hunt. For some, that's why they fish. For others, that's why they build. For some, that's why they cook. They want to achieve something great, and they want to be in awe of what they have done and what they have undertaken. It's this same type of thing within us that, that, is, that, is, that is called to by, by, by people who are really good at kind of motivating and, and pushing people. This is why... JFK was such a great speaker and why he, unlike so many other presidents, was able to inspire so many. He understood the human heart's desire to yearn for something bigger. If you go and you listen to JFK's speeches, almost everyone has some nugget of that. It's kind of built around this idea that there's something bigger that we are a part of as a collective. In his case, he was usually talking about the nation, that we were a part of something bigger than ourselves. That's the ask not what what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Be a part of something bigger was the call. And he knew he could make that that call because it 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 would connect with something in each of us. He challenged the nation to do what was once thought to be completely impossible. He said in his famous speech, we choose to go to the moon not because it is easy, but because it is hard. That rhetoric only works if there's something inside the human heart that whenever we hear that call, we say, yes, that's right. Yes, that's what we want. Yes, that's what we're going to do. And he was able to tap into that. It's been said that if you want to build a ship, you don't drum up the men to gather the wood, divide the work, and give the orders. Instead, you teach the men to yearn for the vast and endless sea, and then you will have your ship. It's something within us that produces something else whenever we yearn for something bigger, whenever we look for something bigger than us. 
And you have to go to the core of each person to find out what stirs their awe, what stirs their attention. And this morning, we're going to start this new sermon series uh, entitled Things Too Wonderful. And it's one that I've threatened to start for about five years, and I've never had the guts to go for it. So in the midst of a pandemic and national unrest, I thought, why not? Let's just go for it now, and we'll do it. I have no idea why I thought this was a good time, but you're there, and I'm here, so here we go. We're going to do this. Um, if you've been around Providence for any time at all, I think somewhere along the line, I made it my, uh, my informal goal to use a quote from A.W. Tozer about every fourth Sunday whenever I preach. Uh, and, and what he says is, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. You've probably heard me say that before. That simple quote uh, forms the foundation and kind of my, my ministry uh, perspective and paradigm of, of how I do what I do, why I teach the way that uh, I teach. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. You see, our knowledge and our view of God will shape our lives in one way or another. It is inevitable. So my goal as a pastor has always been, to the best of my ability, to help us all see God as he, true, as he is truly revealed in Scripture. And my goal is that we would clearly see who God is. And that perhaps, even if just for a glimpse, even if just for a, a moment, but, but hopefully longer than that, When we get a glimpse of who God is, our hearts too would be stirred for that vast, unmeasured sea that is God himself. Now typically we'll do that in a sermon series as I'll walk through a verse and and, and a book and we'll talk through that. Um, The summer though can be difficult to do that because people are in and out with traveling and vacation. This summer uh, in particular would be tough to do something like that, walking through a book. So uh, instead we're going to do this series uh, and what we're going to talk about each week is a, is a characteristic or an attribute, a truth of who God is. We'll identify it, we'll discuss it, we'll see it in Scripture, and then we'll talk about how that plays out in our lives. That's going to be the summer for us. We're going to pull out one truth, one aspect of God, kind of look at it from several different angles. Now, I don't intend for this to be like a high and lofty, kind of inaccessible series where, we, where we're not really able to, to converse and talk through things. I don't, uh, I don't intend this to, to work this way, but uh, we're going to be talking about the nature of God. So if we're going to be talking about the nature of God, by definition, we're going to be treading into some pretty deep waters. We will be going where angels fear to tread, or uh, as theologian J.I. Packer uh, once said, we will make our attempt as a clown attempts to play Hamlet. That is basically what we'll be doing this summer. We will do our best to know more about God and to learn about God, but we, we do that knowing that we fall woefully short. But God's Word does give us guidance. It does lay some things out for us, and then we will go, we will go through each one. Today, though, I kind of want to lay the initial groundwork for the series. Before we start pulling out one aspect of God, I kind of want to want to set the right framework through which we will view each of these, at, these, uh, these different attributes. And so I want to make sure that our hearts are appropriately set for the weeks ahead. So we're going to be in the book of Job. As I said, we're going to be in Job chapter 38, toward the end of the book. Job chapter 38. <clears throat> and if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, it's going to be important this morning because there's going to be some stuff I'm not going to read 
but if you kind of let your eye wander and you kind of keep on following through some things that I don't read, you'll see that there's quite a bit uh, there. And so it's good if you do have your own Bible with you to kind of let your eyes uh, scan and let some of these verses just, just wash over you. And so as you turn there, I have a bit of a confession to make. I don't really like the book of Job. Um, I know a pastor's not supposed to say that about Scripture. I know I'm not supposed to, to, to say that. I'm just being honest, and this is something I've asked God to kind of open my eyes to some things. But just, I mean, it, it's Scripture is absolutely authoritative. It's true, and I want to be able to learn from it. But for me, just whenever I read the book of Job, it's just a slog to get through in so many places. And where it's not a slog to get through, it's just depressing. It's just sad. And so it can be a hard book for me to, to read and uh, you just get to one point where it's like, all right, I can't, this is too much. I just can't do this anymore. Um, and that's like 90% of this book, that would be uh, where I am. I just, I just struggle with it. But there's four chapters in here where I do not feel that way. There are four chapters in here that I regularly go back to because they are such a, a good kind of reset for me. And it's funny how, how that works, how within this book that I that I struggled through, I get this other, this other stuff that is so important for me and uh, really has sustained me in a lot of different ways over the course of the last several months and even uh, year. I keep going back to these and rereading them regularly. They're kind of a touchstone, a reminder of the things that are important to me, a reminder of my own sinfulness and selfishness uh, that I too often forget. So before we get there, let's just set the stage for what's been going on to make a very, very long story short, uh, Job has lost everything. His family, uh, kids, wife, uh, his camels, his money, everything. It's all gone. And in his grief and his anguish, everyone has an opinion as to what Job should do, as to w- what he should say, and, and what really what Job should do about it. They give uh, some advice. Some of their advice is decent. Some of their advice is is terrible. They try to read into why all this has happened to Job, and they say, Job, if you had done this, then none of this would have happened. Or Job, if you were this type of person, then you wouldn't have had this happen to you. But really, all of it is is kind of off. I think Job's friends get a bit of a bad rap. I think they're trying to help. They just they just get off. Um, I think their issue is less the advice they give and more the heart that they give it with. They're arrogant friends that presume upon God and knowing why God does certain things. Um, Their theology is off, but their arrogance is really what's way off. Job, though, through all of this, doesn't bite. He doesn't, he he never gets to a point where he's like, oh, okay, I got you. I'm I'm right there with you. I understand. This is why uh, God did this to me. He's always confused. He's never really fully understands why God allowed these things to happen. And in his searching for meaning, his suffering, uh, through his suffering, he, he kind of falls into the similar trap where he feels like he knows it all. He finally thinks he knows why God did what he did. And then that's when we get to Job 38, verse 1. Job 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by my words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Man, that's strong stuff right there. When God shows up out of the whirlwind, and he says, Who is this that dares to, to kind of call me out? Dress for action like a man. 
I like the, I think it's the King James version of that. It says, gird up your loins and act like a man. Uh, that's, a, that's a solid, if we ever have a men's retreat, I think that's what we're going to call it. Gird up your loins. I think that's what, what it'll be. Gird up your loins and act like a man. Dress for action like a man. So, uh, God basically says, I've got some questions to ask you, Job, since you think you know it all. And what follows is just a blistering takedown of Job. Mind you, this is Job who's been relatively steadfast in all of this and, and pretty protective of God's name through all of this and reputation through it all. But God still shows up, and this is what he says. And I'm going to read some of this. I'm just going to kind of let it fly. I'm going to go through several verses of this. But there's four chapters of this, and I'm not going to read all four chapters, even though I swear I'm tempted to do it. I'm just going to read uh, a handful of verses here, a few stanzas, because I want you to kind of feel just the, 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 the wilting pressure and, and blistering pace at which God delivers this message to Job. Job 38, verse 4. God says, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut, the sea, who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked into the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanses of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Where is the way of, dwell, of the dwelling of light, and where is the place of darkness, that you may take, take it to its territory, and that you may discern the paths to its home? You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. Uh, maybe it's just God's sarcasm in all of this that I appreciate, because... I have too much of that. But man, he just lays it on. Have you entered the storehouses of, of the snow? And have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the days of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed and where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land and, <clears throat> and to make the ground sprout with grass? On and on and on we can go here. You can keep reading it yourself as, as we talk here. Just on and on God goes. He says, where were you when all this happened, Job? Do you know how to get there? Do you know what it looks like? Do you know what this is all about? Tell me, Job. Where were you at? God is laying into him here. But notice what God is doing. He's not tearing into Job for his sin. He's not beating Job down for having failed him in some way. On the contrary, he's not even talking about Job at all. 
Now, he's asking questions of Job, but he's not, he's not there to obsess about Job and what Job has done or what Job hasn't done. God is trying to, to, to change Job's paradigm just a little bit. He's trying to lift Job's gaze out of the pit, out of the mire, and make him long for something greater, make him long for something bigger. Job's primary problem that God was addressing wasn't so much Job's actions or Job's response. It was Job's focus. Job hadn't taken the time to look up, and really he'd spent more of his time just looking around. He was focused on the mire, and he was focused on the pit. Friends, when that happens to us, we're in big trouble. We are in big trouble whenever our gaze focuses on what is happening around us. Whenever our view and how we assess what God is doing is limited to what we can see kind of on this horizontal plane, right? When our focus stays in that place, we are, we are ripe for Satan to sow seeds of discontentment, anger, frustration. We are ripe for doubt. We are ripe for us to be able to be fully distracted from what God has called us to be. Now, I could go full self-help preacher on y'all right now. I could go, I could go Joel, Joel Osteen, and I could say that what you've got to do is lift up your head, and if you'll lift up your head, you'll lift up your circumstances too. I could say change your gaze, and you'll change your days. Lift your heart, and the healing will start. But that would be, at best, incomplete advice, if not just plain old nonsense. God is trying to show Job the way out of his circumstances, the way out of his aimless drift. He's telling Job that he needs to make sure he understands just where he sits in the grand scheme of God's design. And Job doesn't sit in the judgment seat, nor does he sit in the teacher's seat. God drives it into Job, stanza after stanza, about how great God is. He wants to make it clear that Job needs to reorient his heart, and that when that happens, then Job might clearly, might see clearly how he is to respond to what he's been through. Friends, this is our daily task as well. I don't know what you're dealing with right now. I don't know if you come in here with massive problems or you come in here just trucking along trying to get through day to day. I don't know what it is that you're doing, but I know so long as God owes you, so long as you feel like God owes you something, you'll never begin to see what God is doing in your situation. God's solution to the problem is to reawaken Job's awe. And this is the problem we have. We have hearts that are hardwired for something bigger than us. But we chase it down in the most unhelpful and sinful ways. And this world is set on convincing us that they have a solution to our problem. They have many solutions to our problem. And you see, what this world does is they take the things that God has given us, they take the things that are around us, and they spin them out to become the end goal. Instead of a means to an end, they become the end goal, and then we begin to get bored. 
And this is what we do. This is Satan's playbook. We can take anything. Food, sex, careers, entertainment, sports, art, family. On and on we could go. These are all things God has given us that should stir in our hearts a desire for something great. An an appreciation for something done well. And that desire should be for something big and grand. And what should happen is that when we see our children or we eat a good steak or when we celebrate a big team victory, that even those things, as temporary and fading as they are, they should remind us of that thing that is bigger than all of those things. It should be like a giant arrow pointing us to God who is, by design, the only thing big enough to truly design, to truly fulfill that desire that we have in our hearts. Paul Tripp says, horizontal awe is meant to do one thing, to stimulate vertical awe. So whenever you celebrate something on this plane, <clears throat> what that should do is to say, this was great. Man, this makes me long for something even greater. And instead of it making us long for something greater and us then lifting our gaze, what we so often do is we begin to invest more resources, more time, more money, more energy into finding ways to recreate that moment and that experience. We go to more concerts. We lose our minds whenever our teams lose because we have been robbed of that moment that we experience and that we crave so much. We, we want that transcendent moment of victory. And so whenever our teams are, are, are terrible and whenever they don't win, we get mad, not because they, 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 they somehow owe this to us, but because we so crave that moment, that transcendent moment. We eat more and more food. We chase more and more relationships or more and more computer screen clicks. And why do we do that? Because our hearts are hardwired to crave something more. And we will look anywhere to find it. And the world will promise that it's just right around the corner. Just one more click, one more dollar, one more bite, one more relationship. And then maybe you'll be satisfied. And then what ends up happening is we find this thing that satisfies for just a moment, like cotton candy at the fair. It's so good, but then it doesn't, it doesn't sustain. And we invest everything to chase after that. Paul Tripp again says it this way, you will live in awe of what you credit with the blessing in your life. You will worship whatever it is that you think has produced what you celebrate. Let me say that again. You will live in awe of what you credit with the blessing in your life. You will worship whatever it is that you think has produced what you celebrate. Whatever you crave the most, whatever it is that you think gives that satisfaction to you for a moment, that will become what you will worship. And ultimately, all of our sin comes down to this one problem. This inability to comprehend the depth of our need and the inability of this world to meet that need. We sin because our hearts, even if just for a moment, are convinced that we will find something greater than God in our sin. That's how Adam and Eve began 
And that's how each of us have followed. This is the story of each of our lives, every single one of us. We are chasing after something outside of ourselves to stimulate something inside of ourselves and everything, every single thing we find. So long as God's grace is still with us, every single thing we find will come up short and be found wanting. Why? Because God designed it that way. He designed these things to short circuit. And I tell you what, one of the most terrifying things for me to witness as a pastor is, we don't have time to go to Romans 1, but when you read in Romans 1, it talks about how God turned, turned over uh, sinful, sinful man to, uh, to the lusts of their flesh. And, and, and my take on that, what I understand that to mean, is that basically God said, you know what, those things that shouldn't satisfy you, I'm going to let them satisfy you. And you will be satisfied in your own small little way. That is a terrifying thing to witness in your, in your church as a pastor, even in your own life, whenever you feel that. Whenever you see someone that is so satisfied with something so small. Because you know that there is more and something greater to be had. Job had begun to short-circuit, but he didn't know it yet. Things had, 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 had fallen apart inside himself on some level, but not completely. He hadn't spun out of control. He wasn't screaming and, and, and railing against God and rebelling against God. But he was starting to lose his focus and starting to short-circuit. He hadn't completely lost it. It's more like he'd just kind of gotten stuck. He wasn't spiraling out of control, but he wasn't going anywhere either. I bet a bunch of you could probably relate to that. Maybe you can't relate to Job and all the suffering that he has uh, endured, but you can relate to to this this idea of where you've kind of gotten your gaze off of, 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 of the vertical, focused on the horizontal, and you've just gotten stuck. You aren't going anywhere. You aren't growing. You aren't falling apart. You're just stuck. So what was Job's solution? Well, he didn't have one until God showed up. His solution was to try to to make up answers as he went along. What he needed was for God to remind him of who God was. That was the solution. He needed to quit looking around and start looking up. So what was Job's reaction to this first kind of undressing that he had received, this blistering response that he had received from God? There's two places Job reacts. The first is Job chapter 40, verse 3. Job chapter 40, verse 3. And then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once. I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Job's first response to this blistering, this blistering monologue from God is stunned silence. Stunned silence. Let 
After this, God begins to lay into Job again. First, God was asking if Job had created everything and if he knew all things about creation. Now God's going to change the, the, the tone just a little bit and he's going to ask him if, if Job is anything like him. Is Job anything like God? Does Job compare in power and strength and majesty? I don't have time to read it all. You can, you can read through it there just immediately following those verses. God just lays into Job again. He says, are you, are you clothed in majesty like I am? Are you as great as I am, Job? Do you have the power to, to, to pull the, the monster from the depth of the sea? Are you that strong, Job? And then we get to Job 42, verse 1. And we see Job's second response. Job 42, verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord, and he said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard, heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself. And repent in dust and ashes. Now Job has a clear view of who God is. He'd heard of him. He, he thought he knew God. But now God has, 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 has clarified his vision. He's given him new, new spectacles from which to be able to, to see who God is. And now that he has the clearest view of how great God is, his course of action is simple. Weep, repent, and ask for mercy. Job says, in my ignorance I had said and done dumb things. But now his eyes open to things too wonderful for him. And he responds in the, the only way he can. To, to cry out for mercy and to repent. So here's what I've learned. And that's why this is such an important uh, series for us and why, so it's why it's so important for us as we begin this series this morning. To remain in awe of something is a very difficult thing. You wouldn't think so. I mean, if something is awesome at one point, it should be awesome at any point. But to remain in awe of something is a discipline. A couple of, a couple of years ago, we got our chance to, to, to take the kids on a, on a trip to, to Florida. My parents uh, arranged kind of a surprise trip to go down to Disney for a couple of days. And we surprised the kids, took them to the airport. We got out and we were like, all right, guys, suitcases are in the car. We're getting ready to fly. That was so much fun. Isaiah loves planes. He loves planes. He can tell you all about the Blue Angels. He can tell you all about, he's got couple Blue Angels outfits. We got autographs from the Blue Angels. We, this, this week, normally we would be down watching the Blue Angels practice at some point. He loves airplanes. And he always talked about, I'd had a chance to fly to a couple of places, and he'd always be so jealous that I had a chance to fly. And so whenever we surprised him that day, and he got a chance to, to sit in, in an airplane and actually fly to Florida, man, he was so excited. 
smile on his face. It's some of my favorite pictures that we have, some of the best videos that we have of us taken off for the first time. It was quite literally an awesome experience for him, for Abby too, but for Isaiah who had, who had thought and loved planes so much. But here's the thing, I promise you, if he gets a job where he's got to fly once or twice a month, at some point, that's going to get routine. It's not going to be awesome anymore. Flying in an airplane is nuts. The fact that we think that's normal just still boggles my mind. But that's crazy. But if you do it enough, it loses that sense of awe. Can I just tell you, that would break my heart if he ever lost that. I want him to feel that the rest of his life. He'll get tired of it. It will become routine. So it is with us and God. But that's not because God isn't awesome. It's because we have a flaw built into us. It's our sinful flesh. It's not supposed to be there. It's not the way God has designed us. But our ability to maintain awe in the things that deserve awe, specifically God himself, that has been short-circuited by our sin. You know, some days we can see him so clearly. We're like Peter and John at the Transfiguration. If I had more time, we'd go there and we'd read it. They see Jesus high and lifted up, and they see Elijah and Moses beside him, and they are they don't even know what to say. They're, they're, they're terrified. They're blown away. It is such an awesome moment that Peter's like, let's, 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 build, a, let's build a tabernacle here to, to commemorate this. This is amazing. Just a short time later, Peter's cursing a girl saying, I swear I don't know that guy. Maintaining our awe in the place where it should be is a discipline. And it is one that we will fail at. Our sin continually pulls our eyes away from His his grandeur and back to our filth that is dressed up like a Savior. Chris told me a a quote he saw online this week, and that's the perfect one. I need to look up and see who it was that said it, but it It's something to the effect that even the stars lose their brilliance if you hold a penny close enough to your eye. Even something as grand as that can be blocked out by something as small as a penny if you hold it close enough. So friends, as we start this series, this is my heart. I want to open our eyes. I want my eyes to be open to the greatness of God. And my prayer is that our hearts and our eyes will be lifted and that we will respond to this holy God and our response would be a holy one. And that as we open God's word, we would indeed see things too wonderful for us. And that we will see his grace in that. So this morning, if you're stuck, go read those chapters over and over and over in the book of Job. Look at what God said to Job. See God's greatness. Let that lift you from your pit. Not because you pull yourself up, but because you change your gaze. Let our eyes be opened and our hearts be made glad 
as we study this great God together. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning, you know the inadequacy that I feel for the task that you have put before us. But I I come before you humbly asking that you would reveal yourself to us through your word, in your spirit, and that we would see clearly, some of us maybe for the first time, of your greatness. And our smallness. Father, may that lead us to the same response as Job. To repent in dust and ashes. To run to Jesus. Who is the very image of God. Made visible for us. Throw ourselves at the cross and worship as we should. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.